The minute you hear the science is settled, you know something is wrong. Today I sit down with Richard Lindzen, an atmospheric physicist and professor emeritus of meteorology at MIT. I mean, CO2, they forget, is, you know, essential. We're treating it as a poison. If you could get rid of 60% of the CO2, or roughly, we'd all be dead. What are the so-called climate experts getting wrong? What has been the impact of our climate policies? You have cattle raisers in Ireland all going under. Starvation in Sri Lanka. And you see, these policies have had no impact on CO2. They have done nothing to prevent this alleged existential threat, except make people poorer, make society less stable, less resilient. And you can only account for that with either ignorance or sadism. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest-rated firms in the country, with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Professor Richard Lindzen, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Well, it's my pleasure as well. Well, let's start with the basic question. You know, we always hear that the science around climate change is settled. Is it settled indeed? Well, of course not. I mean, the minute you hear the science is settled, you know something is wrong. Science is never settled. And when you claim it's settled, you, you want to shut off all disagreement because you don't have much to present. You know, uh, you said something very interesting as we were speaking earlier, preparing for this interview. You said that science is one of the few words you know that when you add the word the in front of it, it means the exact opposite. Sure. I mean, science is a mode of inquiry. And the science is science's authority. And of course, political figures, people not in science, have often noticed that science uh, has a certain authority with the public and they want to co-opt it. So they bring in the term, the science, which is how they view science. But that isn't what science is. Science is always open to question. Science depends on questions, depends on being wrong. And you know, when you say science cannot be wrong, you've choked off science. You know, that's absolutely fascinating. I want to explore this this exact kind of realm uh, because I think it might actually be that some of the people that are citing the science really have no idea how science is supposed to work in the first place. <laughs> but you know, that didn't even occur to me until somewhat recently that it might be like that. But uh, I want to actually talk about the actual sci science around climate change and what the current state of that science as you understand it is. <laughs> You're asking for a lot more question. Now, you know, science, uh, climate uh, is a complex subject. Um, we, we treat it in the press as though uh, it's one number, that's climate. But until, you know, this issue, uh, what climate science was, was primarily to understand the Earth's climate at present. And the reason that's complicated is, you know, something represented by something called the Kepin classification. We have dozens of climate regimes on the Earth right now, not one. 
and uh, they all behave somewhat differently. And the notion that there is one number, uh, funny number, temperature of the earth, that uh, they all work in lockstep with is absurd. But that number itself, people don't understand what it is. I mean, you know, I could ask you, what is the temperature of the earth? How do you take it? Well, I, I, the, my answer is, I, I would guess that people are taking temperatures in all sorts of different places around the world and pulling an average out of that. That would be my guess. Yeah, so you average Mount Everest and the Dead Sea. What do you get? Um, Nonsense. Uh, <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't do that. They realize that doesn't work. And so the first thing you get is that... Uh, they take what's called the temperature anomaly. What they do is at each station, they take a 30-year mean, roughly 1950 to 1980, let's say, and they then uh, look at the deviation from that mean, and they average the deviations at each station. So you're getting the average temperature change, and that's what you see in this graph. And you see this graph, is it's going up since 1800, certainly 1880, going up by one and a fraction degree, which isn't a heck of a lot. But there's something wrong with that diagram. And what's wrong with that diagram is you don't see the data points. You should always see the data points. Now, if you plot that, and show the data points. This little thing going up a degree or so is surrounded by dense clouds of data that are ranging from minus 10 to 10, 20 degrees. And so the mean anomaly on that looks like a horizontal line. Your first estimate is it's constant. Well, you know, couple of things to be said about that. You take away the data points and then you expand the scale so that one degree or two degrees occupies your whole graph. Now it looks big. People don't look at the numbers. They don't know the data. The data itself is saying that at any given point as many stations almost are cooling as warming. So it's saying it's not telling you about any place which is consistent with the fact that we have many climates. At any rate, you know, you then smooth it because you don't want to show the wiggles each year. But if you don't have the wiggles, you don't know what the what's called the variance, which is about 0.4 degrees, which means any time the media bloviates about 0.1 degree increase, they're talking about an insignificant increase. And so, you know, the whole issue at that level depends on a public that is utterly enumerate and cannot read a graph. And unfortunately, when it comes to most politicians, I think that's correct. I mean, I, I've occasionally watched a Senate hearing and uh, somebody comes up, often Al Gore was doing this when he was in the Senate, he shows a graph. And... I thought, well, maybe he's trying to point something out because the graph didn't look right. And no, he wasn't doing that at all. He was showing his colleagues he had a graph. Don't, don't screw around with me. <laughs> uh, it wasn't that there was information. So that's, you know, that coupled with ad infinitum re repetition, Arla Gerbel's, that coupled with the media repeating this, uh, most people just can't deal with that. Uh, they assume this can't happen unless there's something there, and there isn't. So there's a general understanding that there has been a temperature increase, and there's a general understanding that humans have been involved to some extent. So how much do we actually know around that? It is true there is a greenhouse effect. 
Uh, it is primarily due to water vapor and clouds. Uh, CO2, methane, nitrous oxide are minor, minor constituents. Roughly speaking, you, if all other things kept constant and you doubled CO2, uh, you would get a little under one degree of warming. Now, underlying that statement is some other material in a sense. Uh, for instance, uh, you said all things kept equal. Well, there is something called Le Chatelier's principle, which says in long-lasting natural systems, uh, they will resist change, which is say feedbacks would be negative, they would try. Now, in most models today, water vapor and clouds are positive feedbacks. There's the underlying assumption that uh, nature will take whatever we do and make it worse. Which is a kind of odd assumption. There's no basis for it. But it does give the models more than a little under a degree. It may even bring it to as high as three degrees. Now, the next point there would be even three degrees isn't that much. We're dealing with changes for a doubling of CO2 on the order of, you know, between breakfast and lunch. And the thought that people can't handle that is a little bit strange. Where does it come from that uh, that is uh, an existential threat? Uh, interestingly, it comes from no place except the propaganda. Even the UN's IPCC scientific report doesn't speak about an existential threat. Uh, they speak about a reduction of GDP of 3% by 2100, assuming the GDP has increased many several times by then. That doesn't sound existential to most people, so that's a little bit weird. But the other thing they point to is if we went to major changes in the past, you know, the last glacial maximum when you had two kilometers of ice over Illinois, or 50 million years ago when you had a warm period with uh, alligator-like critters in Svalbard, north of Norway, uh, the mean temperature change was only five degrees. So they said, you know, three degrees, this could be something serious. The trouble is the change in the warming of the last 150 years or so, there's no resemblance to the changes during the major change. What happened during the major changes was the temperature difference between the tropics and the pole. In the case of the last glacial maximum, increased by 20 degrees centigrade. And during the warm period, it decreased by 20 degrees. Today it's about 40, it was 20 during the warm, and it about, was about 60 during the glacial period. And that, of course, gave a large change in the mean. During those periods, the tropics remained almost constant. On the other hand, the greenhouse change and the observed change since 1880, 1800, doesn't matter, almost all occurred in the tropics and there was no change in the tropics to pole, which is exactly different. Now, why is that important? The tropics to pole temperature difference depends on the dynamics of the heat transport by motion. The equator depends to some extent on the greenhouse effect. So all we're seeing is something, and it could be due to CO2, about a degree, but it is not changing the tropics to pole. And so three degrees is not something amplified at the pole, it's three degrees or one degree, or a half degree every place. And that the thought that that's existential requires massive changes and so on is, you know, unreasonable. It's, it's absurd. CO2 
is of course in a way the dream of a regulator I mean if you control CO2 you control breathing if you control breathing you control everything so this always is one temptation the other temptation is the energy sector no matter how much you clean fossil fuels they will always produce water vapor and CO2 and so you have the whole energy sector it's one of the few sectors that is in the many trillions of dollars and there are huge opportunities there even though it makes no sense I mean CO2 they forget is you know essential we're treating it as a poison most people you say believe the narrative they also believe CO2 is dangerous uh, you know for instance uh, I think the concentration of CO2 in your mouth is about 40,000 parts per million as opposed to 400 outside uh, 5,000 is permitted on space station it's hardly a poison but worse than that it's essential if you could get rid of 60% of the CO2 or roughly we'd all be dead so this is a very strange pollutant it's essential for plant life it's basis for photosynthesis and yet uh, because it is uh, the inevitable product of fossil fuel burning and the energy sector it's being attacked. Well, something that's very interesting uh, that you mentioned uh, moments ago was that the IPCC projections, they're saying that this increase in temperature will, will reduce the global GDP. However, it just strikes me that the types of policies that are being advocated all involve a reduction in the energy sector, which of course would mean probably a much greater reduction in GDP, wouldn't they? I mean, that's just that's just oh, what occurs oh, to me. Oh, 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 you're making an important point. The projections do not include the policies. In other words, they're just looking if we continue, quote, business as usual, then they get that. Now, you're introducing the element that uh, we're having a great deal of policy change. We've already devoted trillions of dollars to windmills and solar panels and God knows what else. Uh, it's interesting in that respect, of course, those are opportunities, but if you look at the impact of these, they have increased the cost of energy. They have increased poverty rates. In Europe, this is especially noticeable. They're attacking agriculture for methane. They're using logic which makes no sense. I mean, for instance, with methane, CO2 already does very little. Methane does vastly less. But each molecule of methane, because you have so little of it, has more impact. So the regulators say we must control methane, even though the amount of methane is not enough to do anything. Okay, what's the impact of that? Well, cattle. You get rid of agriculture, you know, cattle. That makes no sense. You have uh, ranchers, you have cattle raisers in Ireland, all going under. Um, now, already we're seeing the malice of this nitrogen is even less but that's used to get rid of fertilizer which has led to starvation in Sri Lanka so already we're seeing massive harm from the policies now you could only impose this harm legitimately if it were an existential threat but then you look at CO2 versus time and you see these policies have had no impact on CO2. So they have done nothing to prevent this alleged existential threat except make people poorer, make society less stable, less resilient. And you can only account for that with either ignorance or sadism. And yet people are told, as often has happened in the past, 
that sadism is virtuous and they want to be virtuous and they don't get told that it's sadistic. Well, I think there's a third option. Um, and the third option is that you have a very set idea about the, how the world is going to look in the future and you just don't care what it takes to get there. Well, what is the view as to that you're speaking about? Well, you know, for example, essentially human beings are viewed as a kind of a plague on the earth and uh, and just are the effects of human beings on the earth are, are, are negative. So we, we need to reduce that impact at any cost. And that's actually the, vi the vision and sort of whatever tools are are needed to get there uh, would, would be fine. I, I'm not saying that, that that's exactly what's happening. I'm saying that that's a vision that I've heard about that doesn't assume a kind of you know sadism or some other some other kind of a. Uh, it's a view. It is the view of someone who was Obama's science advisor, John Holdren, and that was a prominent view in the 1970s, that we were suffering from overpopulation. I've often wondered about that. I mean, it's an interesting view. Malthus had it, of course. It's always proven wrong. I mean, I, I remember at the time, uh, you know, of independence, India's population was something on the order of two, three hundred thousand. It's now about 1.2 billion. When it was two, three hundred thousand, India suffered from famine. Uh, now that it is one point something billion, they're a food exporter. I mean, uh, mankind has a certain ingenuity and ability, and uh, so far we're managing very well. Uh, we're now facing a new danger, uh, according to some economists, that the population looks like it's going to stop going up. And... Uh, there are implications for a decreasing population. I mean, look at the uh, problem with Social Security and such things. But more than that, it, it would be a problem if demand starts decreasing because there are fewer people. Uh, what do you do about interest rates and investment and so on? So we have a lot of thinking to do about population decrease. Worrying about increase at this stage is probably a mute point. <laughs> But you're right, there are people who have that view. The view is malicious, it's insane. It's contrary to data. It makes no sense. So it is not a benign view. And I don't think it is at present largely considered as virtuous. So I think there have to be other motives. I mean, certainly control is one, power is another, and there, I have this feeling, and that's personally a feeling. I mean, I don't know this, but I, you know, when I grew up in the 40s and 50s, something marvelous was going on in the US and actually in much of Europe. And that was ordinary working people were able to buy homes and cars and have dignity and that you know when I moved to Boston from Chicago we bought our house from a janitor and across the street was a carpenter and today these people cannot afford to live in that neighborhood and so there seemed to have been a general resentment of ordinary people living well and certainly our climate policy and other policies, deindustrialization, are killing that. I want to talk a little bit about your background. You mentioned moving from Boston to Chicago. Um, tell me a little bit about your career trajectory, uh, what it was that you have been studying, and how this intersects with these questions we're discussing. Yeah, I grew up in New York, went to Bronx Science, uh, continued in college. I got a degree from Harvard in applied math and then a master's and doctorate at Harvard, so stayed there for a while. Uh, I worked, did postdoctoral work in, at the University of Washington because Harvard didn't provide much in the way of observational work, and Washington did. Then went to Norway 
for a year. And uh, there was a prominent meteorologist there, Arnt Eliasson, who I enjoyed working with. And I went to work at a national lab, National Center for Atmospheric Research. My area was atmospheric dynamics, but also my thesis was the interaction of the motion with chemistry and radiation. And I had, you know, reasonably productive years. You know, we had solved a number of basic problems. One concerned the motion over the equator at about in the stratosphere. It's very peculiar. It goes from east to west for about a year and then turns around, goes the other way for a year, average period 26 months. And I think we explained how that worked. And there's an old problem in tides, uh, that we solved. So I had a bit of a reputation and uh, I got a tenure offer from the University of Chicago. And so we were there and I liked Chicago, uh, but my wife was concerned with the safety issues there already. And uh, I got an offer of a chair at Harvard after a few years. So uh, I accepted that. We moved to Boston and uh, I spent about 12 years as a uh, professor at uh, Harvard, was the burden chair of uh, atmospheric science. And uh, a close friend and colleague at MIT was a man called Jules Charney. And Jules was considered the preeminent dynamic meteorologist uh, of the post-war period. Uh, he died and uh, I had in the meantime been elected to the National Academy in 77, but when he died, his chair was offered to me and I accepted it and moved to MIT. And uh, you know, the usual, I mean, lots of students and something on the order of 250 publications and so on. That also is a bit strange in a way I mean, Jules Charney, the man I mentioned, his lifetime number of publications was about 60. Uh, we had on the faculty Ed Lorenz, who is very prominent, father of chaos theory, some would say. And again, relatively few publications. Uh, in my career, people started publishing much more. And I think this was something because you know, grants became more important, harder to get, and uh, journals were proliferating and so on. Uh, I'm still a little bit concerned about that in science. I mean, uh, uh, when I started, if you published uh, one or two papers a year, that was considered good, and the papers were substantial. What I've noticed now is, you know, the old papers would be broken into 10 papers and published in parts. So really didn't add to progress. Oh, that's very interesting. But you also developed something, you know, directly related to this question of global warming, which is uh, iris theory, right? Yeah, no, there are a number of things I've done. Uh, one, you know, as I mentioned to you, there are two domains, the equator to pole, tropics to pole temperature difference, which depends on hydrodynamics, and the tropical temperature, which depends on greenhouse processes. And I mentioned to you that the models assume feedbacks are positive. They all make things worse. Um, when I was consulting at NASA, which I was at the time with two colleagues, we tried to look at uh, what was happening to the water vapor and clouds. And we noticed that a very important greenhouse substance were the upper level thin clouds, cirrus, often uh, detrained from cumulonimbus towers. So you had these big convective towers and uh, they, at the end they detrain water vapor and it gives rise to thin clouds that these thin clouds were extremely important greenhouse substances. And in, in particular, they responded to temperature. So uh, when it got warmer, they contracted. When it got colder, they expanded. And so they were acting against the greenhouse warming. 
and are acting as negative feedbacks. And, you know, it, it's interesting. Uh, <laughs> it's typical of this field, I should mention. I published this paper with the two co-authors in the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society. I had 10 years previous to that published a paper presenting some questions about global warming. Um, and that was published. In both cases, 10 years apart, although it got published and reviewed, the editor was immediately fired for letting them through. The editor of the whole journal? Yep. Yeah. I mean, you know, the American Meteorological Society had gone along with this saying, yes, we're in favor of the narrative and worked hard. Eventually it became almost totally impossible to publish. You still could publish a little, get it through. But uh, editors were required to use referees, at least include referees, who are gatekeepers who'd be guaranteed to reject. Or the more, eventually what they did was uh, say, except with major revisions, to keep the author busy for a year and then reject. Uh, climate is one of the earliest examples of cancel culture. I mean, uh, when the issue opened up in the early 90s, 88, uh, most media forecasters thought it was silly. And uh, the American Meteorological Society actually certifies weathermen, not researchers, but weathermen. And uh, they began saying that uh, anyone who questioned warming, uh, they wouldn't certify and they had to go for re-education. And so today, you know, you don't hear anyone on the media who will question this. I mean, I don't think the public is quite aware of the pressures that were brought to bear to get rid of opposition to this. I mean, I prepared a list of prominent people in my field who opposed this in the early 90s and even to the present. And they were directors of major labs, head of weather bureaus, head of the World Meteorological Organization. These are really prominent people. Uh, buried. And a part of the burial was, of course, in the early 90s, especially under Clinton Gore, but also somewhat under Bush, uh, the funding for climate uh, in, to in total went up by about a factor of 15. And you literally created a new community that knew that that community existed only because of the narrative. What you're describing kind of parallels um, other uh, scenarios, more recent scenarios, notably around COVID. Uh, I don't know if you've made that observation. <laughs> yeah, no, people have observed it. I mean, it's amazing with COVID because in a way, medical science is much bigger than climate science. And uh, I was very impressed. I mean, you had the Great Barrington Declaration and you had, you know, 30,000 people uh, agreed to it, contradicting the narrative on COVID, and they were shut down. But uh, yeah, we were familiar with that. It's been going on for a while in my field. Well, so what strikes me here is that, you know, I guess it was, I don't know if it's the first example, but it was a very prominent and large-scale example. I mean, I think you're arguing of, of making kind of a bulletproof narrative that you, you're saying is based on entirely false pretenses. Yeah, I, you know, not entirely. There is a greenhouse effect. It depended on people not thinking that a degree was small. I mean, that, that's amazing to me. They see a graph, it goes up one degree, they don't look at the scale, and they're told this is huge, and they say it's huge. 
you have uh, politicians saying if it goes up another half degree, we're all going to boil. And you have people believing that. I, you know, never questioning would a half degree bring anything to a boil. And if it can, can I patent it? I mean. um, well, so you actually, you, I remember you have a paper and tablet a couple of years back, um, you know, looking at the way that the Chinese Communist Party deals with climate and how the West deals with China in this respect exposes a certain kind of obvious cynicism around this issue. And this is something that I'd been thinking about, you know, just generally. I hadn't realized that someone had kind of codified it so, so, so succinctly as you did in this tablet piece. Now, I want to explore that a little bit. Okay. No, that was a very brief piece. Uh, and it uh, addressed something that uh, I think we mentioned briefly, that... Um, no matter what we were doing in the EU or the Anglosphere, it obviously was having no impact on the increase of CO2. Uh, one of the obvious reasons for this, of course, is that uh, China and India and every place other than the EU and the Anglosphere are uh, building coal fired plants and using fossil fuels and ignoring the whole issue. And uh, they are now major emitters. Uh, there are people who are arguing there are natural reasons for this too. I'm no expert in that, but uh, the anthropogenic sources are still there. We're having no impact. Uh, it's pretty clear today that if you buried the EU and the Anglosphere uh, sealed it closed, we're all dead, we're all gone, we have no activity, we have no impact. Uh, CO2 would continue to increase. And so the question is, uh, what's this all about? And I had noticed at the time that uh, a Chinese group was actually uh, organizing meetings of American graduate students and offering prizes uh, for the most uh, alarming uh, contributions. <laughs> so I think there was an obvious cynicism in the, the process. But clearly China and India and Southeast Asia are benefiting immensely. Uh, and at the same time, uh, places like Africa are suffering. And uh, much of South Asia is suffering from these policies. So, from having uh, policies that uh, you know prevent them from developing reliable energy sources being sure, forced have, on them by these large institutions, people who don't have access to modern electricity and so on, uh, they're being told they they should be frozen in that state. All effort, over much of Africa, people are depending on burning dung and so on for fuel. It's much more polluting. And, you know, I was just shocked when the World Bank, uh, you know, refused financing for a hospital in the Congo unless it used renewable energy. And I was thinking, who of these idiots would want to be operated on in a hospital running on solar or wind? I mean, uh, it's hard to describe, I mean, what's going on. And... Uh, the West is beginning to feel it in the high prices and the inflation. And hopefully, and I think in England, people are waking up when they're told, you know, you have to get rid of your heating plant and put in a heat pump and one that's run on the renewables and so on. <laughs> and then we have the electric car. You know, they're, they're a typical political thing. I mean, electrical cars only make sense vis-a-vis -vis pollution. Well, they do make sense for urban pollution. Uh, but as a friend of mine who bought a Tesla put his bumper sticker on, and the bumper sticker said, my car runs on coal. And of course, you know, only people who think electricity comes from the tap can imagine that somehow uh, an electric car needing to charge a battery gets it from the tap. 
as opposed to a power plant. And in much of the world and much of the country, that power plant will be fossil fuel. And moreover, it'll be fossil fuel that have been converted twice into mechanical, to get, reach mechanical energy. So it'll be less efficient in terms of emissions and other things than a gas-powered car. You know, I can't help but think just a couple of days ago, we had a, we have a piece about, I think the largest Tesla fast charging station out there has a kind of concealed diesel generator right beside <laughs> it, running it, if I recall. Yeah, yeah, I mean, of course, something has to generate the electricity. <laughs> um, no, I mean, the, as I've pointed out, I mean, I'm sure history will regard this as one of the silliest periods in human history. Uh, where, you know, you have a world in which industrialization and scientific developments were so important fall apart on ignorance and stupidity and cupidity. <laughs> uh, it's, I shouldn't be laughing. This is terrible. Um. <laughs> You know, sometimes you have no choice. <laughs> well, let, let, let me go back to what I was thinking about earlier, right? We believe a lot of things that are untrue today. Um, we're told that they're scientifically proven. And I guess it goes back to the science versus science, I suppose. Yeah. And that we, we have to unravel this somehow. Yeah, that's... So I put it above my pay grade. Uh, no, I mean, I have neighbors here in Newton. I mean, they're educated people. They're not stupid. And they have uh, lawn posters, lawn signs, saying, we believe in science. Science isn't a belief structure. It isn't a cult. It isn't a religion. But... They have that sign, and, and they're totally unaware of how stupid that sign is. I, I have one fairly eccentric view, which is I kind of object to science education in elementary school. And the reason is, it is usually facts about science. And it starts kids off with the wrong idea of what science is. Um, you know, you have to be ready for science. Science is, it, you know, the scientific revolution was a revolution. The notion that you confirm things with data, you check things, the whole notion that uh, a theory could have a hundred correct predictions, and if it has one incorrect one, there's something wrong with the theory. It goes against a lot of human thinking, and it required a certain discipline. And so to treat it as something simple and obvious and so on may be misleading. One of the International Panel on Climate Change, the UN's outfit, they always have these lengthy reports, thousands of pages. And uh, then they will have summaries for policymakers and uh, they will then have uh, also general summaries and then they'll have iconic statements that summarize the 3,000 pages or so in one sentence. And uh, of course, only the science reports or the report Working Group One is science. Everything else is written by government officials and so on. So it's all dicey. But then there comes the iconic statement. And the iconic statement at that time was that they're now almost certain that most of the climate change, the warming, since 1960 was due to man. Okay. Now, most if it were even all of it, you know, you're t talking about a fraction of a degree. 
And if you looked at simple models of climate, this was most consistent with uh, no problem at all. On the other hand, uh, when Senators McCain and Lieberman heard this, what was their response? Their response was, this is the smoking gun and we must do something. Didn't have any such implication. But, you know, as long as it was coupled with uh, funding, certainly the UN and even the science community wasn't going to complain. And so you have this constant triangle of misinterpretation where, uh, you know, scientists make an innocent statement, politicians uh, misrepresent it as catastrophic, and... Uh, they provide more funding for the science or for the field, I mean, climate uh, measures. And so uh, the first group doesn't complain. Well, the, you know, none of this is, <laughs> to, to, not to be glib, but none of this is academic, okay? And are we, we're reorganizing our entire society around, uh, you know, carbon credits oh. and... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and actually, you know, in Africa, it's really not academic in that I expect that it, it's increasing mortality significantly, these kinds of policies. I mean, people are dying because of them. Oh, yeah. No, in fact, I'm going to have an interview with a Kenyan TV station in a couple of days. And uh, they're being besieged by the propaganda that this is an existential threat and they must uh, forego development. Um, horrifying. Uh, you know, as I told you with the uh, hospital in the Congo, uh, they were, the World Bank insisted that they run on renewables. Uh, and then, of course, you have the rare earths needed for the batteries and so on. And these are often uh, mined by children and uh, under extraordinarily unhealthy conditions. Uh, no, I mean, uh, I think a few leaders in Africa are recognizing this uh, may be worse than colonialism. A lot of people that are making policy really don't even understand these basics of how science works or how it's supposed to work. Perhaps, you know, lending some credibility to your eccentric idea about education around science here. But um, I mean, that obviously is highly problematic because increasingly the science is being cited as the reason for everything, as, as the, 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 the bulletproof reason for everything. Well, you had, you know, however you feel about Fauci, when he said, I am the science, you know, he should have been fired on the spot. C.P. Snow, I don't know, do you know the name at all? He was a uh, famous person 50 years ago, 60 years ago. He was a British physicist who was also a science advisor to Churchill during the war, involved with radar and so on. But he was also an author and uh, he began work pushing a theme called two cultures and he he realized that you know well-educated people in the humanities were almost totally ignorant of science and he used the example i mean you know if you ask if he asked one of his uh, colleagues outside of science what was the second law of thermodynamics? And the answer was a blank face. And that was equivalent to saying, I've never read Shakespeare. And then he spoke about, can you define acceleration? Can you find this, that? And they also failed that. And that was equivalent to saying they didn't know how to read. And so, you know, he, he was appalled at the degree of isolation from science that most educated people have. And uh, that's dangerous. I don't know how you solve it, uh, but it 
opens up society to this kind of fraudulence. Well, and, and, and manipulation. Yes, of course. I mean, science is successful. Science has, quote, given us the smartphone. <laughs> I mean, uh, you should trust it. But, of course, you should first ascertain whether the person <laughs> asking you to trust it knew what he was talking about. I mean, you know, again, you never, I never find anyone who checks anything. You know, for instance, uh, when you're told this is an existential threat and uh, all scientists agree, you can check it. Uh, you can look at the IPCC report. It's online and see it doesn't say that. But people don't do that. Um, and th that's a problem, and uh, in my view, it's an insoluble problem. Uh, at some level, one requires integrity, and that's been in short supply. Well, and there's also been this, there's been this rise of a, you know, technocratic, bureaucratic class that, and the, uh, with the assumption that you know, very smart people, I say that with a little TM, uh, trademark, should be able to interpret those issues for the rest of society because the rest of society, how can you know if you're not an expert, right? And and that these people should, should actually be doing effectively the governance. And of course, you know, if you take COVID as a particular example, we can see the abject failure of that model. So we need to kind of retool here to be looking at it, you know, as at least trying to get at the truth. Yeah, no. That's a big problem. I mean, this was the basis for the whole creation of the civil service in the US, that uh, we needed objective experts uh, who could provide guidance. And uh, it's, a, it's a not implausible notion, but we have seen time and again how it can be abused. I mean, you know, I. Uh, wrote a piece some years ago doing the comparison of uh, climate change hysteria with uh, the eugenics movement. And uh, there are close analogies to that as well. You know, you're bringing up something that's very difficult. I mean, how do you change something where, you know, science has been valuable, it has revolutionized the world, uh, people do trust it, but uh, the funding of science is a monopoly of the government, and the government occasionally uh, feels motivated to use the authority of science. So in the case of eugenics, I mean, uh, they had a lot of characteristics that were very informative. One of them was, you know, the issue, for people who don't know, eugenics was, you know, can you literally control breeding of people to produce superior or better types? It was started in the 1880s by the founders of modern statistics. Never caught on that uh, it was mathematical. But then when they rediscovered Mendelian genetics and someone could say that feeble-mindedness was a single recessive gene, and then they went to town and that was crucial. I mean, you know, people want to understand. And so even if you're given something that's wrong but simple, there's a relief for the non-scientist that he now understands. A similar thing was when Al Gore said, you know, Greenhouse gases are like a blanket and they cause warming. He said, ah, now I understand. This is simple enough for me. And John Kerry carried it one step further. I mean, he gave a talk, I think, in Indonesia when he acknowledged that chemistry and physics, we all know, are very difficult. But climate science is so simple, any child can understand it. Uh, it's, you know... Uh, so, you know, you have to appeal to people's insecurity about science and make them feel they understand it. The single gene was one, the blanket is another, 
And then, of course, America had an immigration issue at that time. And uh, there were statistics based on IQ tests given by the army in English that uh, immigrants from uh, East, Italy, Eastern and Southern Europe were feeble-minded. And so uh, we needed restrictions to prevent an epidemic of feeble-mindedness in the US. As ridiculous as that sounds, some of the best, you know, Alexander Graham Bell, Margaret Sanger, Vincent Peale, the famous preacher, George Bernard Shaw, all endorsed this. So we've been through this kind of thing before. What Congress did in promoting the Immigration Restriction Act of 1924 and basing it on, quote, the science, was to pick its own scientist, a man called Laughlin, who endorsed this and ignore all the scientists who were rather quietly objecting. You know, the whole concept of eugenics, right? You, the underlying assumption is, is that you have a right to control this, that, right? That, you, that, it, that, it, that it's the right thing to do to try to oh. engineer you know, That's humanity. A fair point. That's a fair point. Yeah. I mean, on the other hand, uh, you had Supreme Court judges supporting it, saying, uh, you know, two generations of idiots were enough. I want to jump to something. You'd, I just remembered something again from that wonderful little uh, piece on China and climate change that, that you wrote a couple of years back. Um, you talk about how the correct policy needs to be around basically creating resilience uh, in, in, in society against, I suppose, disasters and problems. Like that's the, that's the correct approach. Well, yeah, th this is the issue of adaptation and so on. I mean, with COVID, a lot of people complained, I think legitimately, at the lack of emphasis in treatment. It's just the vaccine or the ventilator. If you were rational and honest about the policy, and if you'd see that your policies are having no impact on what you're claiming is the cause of climate disruption. And of course, the, the decent policy, decent moral policy, would be to prepare your society in such a manner that it was most resilient against whatever changes you think were coming. And we know that's important. I mean, you know, when a hurricane or an earthquake hits Haiti, you have many thousands dead. It's a poor country. It's un it doesn't have resilience. The same earthquake hits Los Angeles, and you have a, less than a handful of deaths because we're a richer society. We can build structures that are earthquake-resistant and so on. Uh, we know this. We know that wealth helps resilience. Poverty hurts it. So you wouldn't face a situation where you're saying climate change is due to CO2, if you believe that, and that it's existential, that you would work to reduce the resilience of your society. And that's what we're doing. And uh, I think when people realize it, I mean, we've got a great many people as you point out, who have been told that, uh, you know, putting uh, solar panels on their roof is a sign of virtue. And uh, at least, I think, for the educated middle class, there seems to be a desperation to be perceived as virtuous. I'm not sure what underlies that. Maybe it's guilt about being prosperous, but uh, it's certainly obvious in any wealthy suburb. So, you know, <laughs> what do you do? You know, maybe we're not really being taught um, 
at the core about how important it is to be virtuous and how to be virtuous. And so we've, you know, it's being kind of ta taught to us from from a place where it has no business being taught. No, I, I mean, don't know. That's a very serious question. Uh, there is a, an organization starting in the UK, but it, it's global, uh, the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship, which is really what you're talking about. And it's obvious we don't have a good idea of that because one part of virtue is to accept the responsibility to check what you're being virtuous about. And instead we, we clasp at anything somebody tells us is virtuous. Um, grabbing, you know, something to proclaim your virtue, putting up a poster that you believe in science or something like that is pretty simple. Checking is harder but it's not that hard. I mean, uh, and I think virtue should ultimately involve some effort. <laughs> it, it does, and maybe, maybe that's maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's just we've kind of in in the West we've, you know, reached this point where everything just has to be incredibly convenient, and if it's if it's if it's too difficult, well, well, we'll, we'll pass on that. I don't I don't know. I mean, these are these are all these questions that are coming up. It's it's it's, it's astonishing that in almost every discipline uh, that I'm exploring, it's these same kinds of questions that keep coming up. Frankly. Oh, yeah. No, these are ubiquitous questions. I mean, we're talking about something that specifically involves science, but there are other issues. I mean, but, you know, COVID, uh, climate, uh, eugenics, or, you know, or in the Soviet Union, uh, Lysenkoism, were all issues right. uh, where a government had a view about what science, they wanted science to say, and successfully imposed it on the public. I mean, uh, you know, how shall I put it? I mean, my family, my parents fled Europe. Most of the family was killed during the war, the Holocaust, but, uh, you know, Hitler managed to convince a large part of his nation that it was virtuous to follow him. I mean, that's how far it can go. The government always has the power to strongly influence how you view what is good. I mean, in the case, in many cases, Soviet Union or National Socialism, the power was the uh, army that you literally had control over violence. Unfortunately, uh, you know, this is also a characteristic of banana republics. And um, one has to be wary of that. And I think we're not sufficiently wary we're not sufficiently wary when we're forced to be frightened. Uh, almost any scam tries to frighten people so that they no longer respond rationally. And we're seeing that time and again. No, absolutely. Well, you know, as we finish up, why don't I'm going to ask you something, uh, maybe a practical question, okay? Okay. Let's say, you know, you have a young daughter, she's in school, she comes home and she's just learned that, you know, basically because of global warming, we only have a few years left. She's incredibly distraught. Um, you're a parent or a friend of the family. What do you say to her? You know, you have to tell her that this is nonsensical. But of course, you know, children are taught to believe their teachers. And so if the parents feel up to it, uh, you know, they could try complaining to the teacher, but it's a difficult issue. And yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not the only person who 
suggests that uh, teaching children this is child abuse. The parents should understand that even the UN doesn't say anything like that, that this is just designed to frighten the children and frightening children is child abuse. You know, this business of taking away hope from children uh, it's criminal. Okay, so again, as we actually finish up, yeah. I think uh, COVID uh, and the whole, um, you know, it's almost like it was kind of an accelerated version of the, the, the way climate change has been dealt with over the last, what is it, 40 years or something like that, right? And, it, and I think that exposed to a whole lot of people that just something isn't right. Information that we're being given with absolute, near absolute certainty just doesn't add up. Yeah, and, I mean, and, I, I, and I have to be more skeptical. And I think there's a heck of a lot more people today that are more skeptical and more open to, you know, the, the, actually this term was criminalized. I mean, I'm exaggerating a bit, of course. Do your own research, right? You're, that, was, that was something that was actually, that was looked down on by the status quo, the status quo people. You know, there are clues, as I say, when somebody speaks of the science, speaks of the authority, uh, speaks about science being settled, these should be red flags. You know, there are certain things that are always danger signals, promotion of fear, promotion of hate, uh, declaration of settled science, I've never seen them used benignly. Opening up discussion of these things and getting through on this is helpful. I think uh, people have to start thinking about it. Uh, but, you know, it's just much easier to go with the flow. And, uh, you know, at universities, for instance, uh, you know, how shall I put it, uh, you know, now, Universities are dominated by administrators. They, they are more numerous than students at some places. And their concern is, you know, raising money. And so the government, if it says, we're gonna give a lot of money for this, that's what they're in favor of. Universities become, it's always amazed me that they're almost the first group to succumb to any such issue. And so, I mean, uh, I, I'm biased in that in some respects. Uh, you know, again, having a background, family background in Germany, uh, my father was a bootmaker. And uh, I noticed in Germany in 1933, when Hitler came to power, uh, the universities, before he even asked, got rid of all their Jews, including converts to Lutheranism who had been born Jewish. Uh, Fritz Haber was a Nobel laureate and a German patriot who had converted. He was fired. On the other hand, when my father died, I, I looked at his papers and uh, he was an observant Jew and he had been admitted to the guild, I think in 1936, after Hitler was in power. And somehow, I mean, bootmakers uh, seem to have more integrity than academics. In a sense, the, they, their value was concrete. You make a good boot, you're a bootmaker. <laughs> uh, something is missing in academia in that respect. Well, Dr. Richard Lindzen, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Okay, good meeting you, Jan. Bye-bye. Thank you all for joining Professor Richard Lindzen and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Mm -hmm.